Well, good morning. And we are so glad you're here. My name is Matt, and I enjoy being the campus pastor here in Halstead. Uh, we are jumping into our series, Asking for a Friend, um, as you heard so eloquently put in there, some questions that uh, would be awkward to ask if you asked them, but it's for a friend, so it's no big deal, right? Like, can you cook bacon with a hair straightener? I've honestly never thought about it, but now that he mentions it, I might try it out. My wife might hate me afterwards. We'll find out. All right, I'll let you know how that goes. But um, now, really what we're doing is, is sometimes there's things in life um, that for one reason or another, you just feel like, ah, you ever had a conversation with somebody and you notice they're like fidgeting with the spoons and the, and the forks and the knives and like they just won't stop fidgeting and all of a sudden they just, you say out with it and just, uh, here it is, right? There's sometimes just this hesitation to ask these questions. So we relieved all that pressure uh, and we asked the questions for you so you don't have to um, because they're for your friend and perhaps even for you this morning. And now what we've been doing over this series is really looking at some difficult questions around faith or some things that you might uh, feel like you should already have the answer to, but you don't yet. And uh, that's okay. Nobody has all the answers here except for Jesus. He's the one who is the answer. Uh, and we're all here pursuing him. But the first week we asked the question, how far gone is too far gone? Can you out God? Is there a point where God just says, done with you? And the answer was no, um, that according to his grace, nobody can out him, uh, that we are all uh, forgivable because of what Jesus did on the cross. Well, then next week we said, what do you do with doubts? Maybe you came to faith and um, you just you kind of don't know what to do with some of the questions you have, where to put them. And, and we said you continually run back to Jesus with them. You don't allow those doubts to stay forever or be the end of the story that there is an answer in Jesus. And if you don't find the answer that you're looking for, uh, he will provide a relationship that makes that answer or non-answer okay. All right. And then next or the last week, we, we talked about what? Does anybody remember? Anger. All right. Uh, we talked specifically about what do you do with the emotions, the angst, the feelings, the ah, that you don't know what to do with that sometimes just kind of surface. And we said they don't have to drive you to sin. They can actually drive you to bring about godly change in your life, that anger really is a response that something's gone wrong and that you ought to do something about it. But largely, we said that undealt with, unmanaged anger becomes a fortress for the enemy to begin to, to launch attacks on us. And you're actually going to hear a story later uh, of a man who, who dealt with some unforgiveness that uh, really became a huge battle uh, in his life and led to other battles in his life. But ultimately, that if we were willing to forgive like Christ had forgiven us, then we'd find the begin to melt as we begin to find the love that God has for us and the love that God has for others. So that was last week. And this week, we're asking a question that um, for, for some of you, it may pop right off and this may become relevant to you. Others, it may not yet. But here's the question. Uh, does God have an answer for my addiction, or does God have an answer for my friend's addiction, if we were to uh, phrase it that way? Uh, can God do anything about it? All right? And here's how we would define addiction. Addiction is this. It is dependence to be enslaved or in compulsive need of something, essentially to something you can't live without. And you, as, you and I as human beings really can be addicted to absolutely anything. Candy Crush is proof to the fact that we can be addicted to anything, all right? Um, some of you are like, he outed me already. We're three minutes into the sermon. How did he know, all right? We have help for you. It's, it's uh, celebrate recovery from Candy Crush. Anyway, um, it really can be anything, though. It can be food. It can be people. It can be sex. It can be substance. It, it really could be money, whatever, and typically, as we approach a sermon like this, we would, we would cast a wide net and we'd have a conversation about all of those. And, and if, that is, if you are in one of those camps, you can listen in and glean from today. But we really want to narrow the focus this morning um, and talk specifically about substance abuse in terms of addiction. 
Now, the reason we want to do this is because it is an incredibly uh, huge thing in our culture, and it is growing at a rate that um, we really need to begin to address and have these conversations for one of two reasons. Uh, one, there might be some of us in here this morning who uh, find themselves um, hooked by addiction to substances, be it alcohol, uh, be it drugs, be, be it whatever, and, and we want you to know that if that's you here this morning, we are so glad you're here. We believe Jesus offers hope and help for anybody who's hurting, uh, and we are so glad you're here with us this morning. For, for those of you who may not be forefront in your mind, you probably don't have to look very far uh, to find it in somebody else's life, be it a, a friend, a loved one, uh, somebody you really care about, a coworker. It is everywhere. And in fact, uh, what we know in America is that overdose is the leading cause of death for people under 50. It's the leading cause of death for people under 50. So that means you look around this room, anybody that you assume is under 50, be careful in that assumption, all right? But the leading cause of death for that demographic is overdose. The second uh, for all of society is uh, car accidents, and the third is suicide. We are literally killing ourselves as a culture. The world around us is literally killing themselves through one of these three uh, mediums. And before you begin to paint the picture of the addict in your mind, the, the entire landscape of what the addict is as society would place that label has changed drastically in the last 20 years. And in fact, there's eight and a half times more uh, prescription pills being used than there was 20 years ago, which has led to four times as many prescription overdoses compared to 20 years ago. The majority of these prescription overdoses are not done by the typical addict, as you might culturally paint in your mind. They're done by people with white-collar white jobs, high-paying success, who had an injury, who got hooked on the pain medication that then led to uh, a drastically terrible overdose. See, the thing that's difficult about addiction is nobody woke up one day and said, I'm going to get addicted. It was one small, seemingly inconsequential decision after another. It was one more drink after a tough day. It was one hit of something that didn't seem like a big deal. It was just one more pain pill because I was in so much pain. But it is those small decisions over a period of time that ended up getting people to a position where they swore they would never find themselves. I have some people that I've been connected with who very high, um, I can't even say what they do because I don't want to out them, very high paying jobs who themselves have a closet uh, prescription addictions that they're battling. It's, it's wrecking their lives. I want you to see some stats on this though. Opioids, uh, 92,000 a year are lost to opioids. There's 16,000 that are lost to uh, other drugs. And you think, okay, well, that's, that's massive. But here's the thing. It's not even the biggest of the groupings of where substance abuse is taking lives. It's actually alcohol. There's 140,000 lives lost every year to alcohol abuse. And that's not including uh, those affected by drunk driving staggering numbers for something that you can run down the road and grab it as long as you're 21 and over and have a legal ID. Staggering. It's such a culturally accepted thing, and yet it's claiming 32,000 lives more than hard drugs. We have to begin to have conversations around this topic, and it actually gets worse because uh, the life expectancy rate in America has decreased for the last four years. For the 50 years previously, it has increased incrementally for 50 years. The last four years, it has begun to decrease incrementally down and is directly tied to the epidemic of overdose. Wow, Matt, what a great day to come to church. We're so glad we're here. So exciting. Listen, this is why we're having the conversation. Because every day, every night, and every weekend, there is somebody in your life, most likely be it your neighbor, be it your friend, be it a loved one, who is so void of hope, 
so void of peace that they are turning to things other than Jesus to find reprieve and rescue. Where they are turning is not offering reprieve and rescue, it is enslaving them to a cycle that is costing thousands and thousands and thousands of people their life. And we believe so confidently here at Bridgewater that God has an answer to your addiction. He has an answer to your friend's addiction. We believe this, and I want you to believe this. I'm going to throw this up there, that God really does have the answer. And we would actually stand and say, God may have the only true answer to lasting change if you or somebody you know is trying to overcome this. And, and the reason we're having this is, is what, what I said, one of two things. I want you to have hope. And two, I want us as a church to be equipped to have conversations with the people we, we are around who need hope. Because they are going somewhere. Would we be equipped that when they turn to us and say, hey man, it's Friday and I'm struggling, that we would know how to begin to speak and offer life into those situations. So I want to turn with you to to Romans chapter 7. If you're here today and you don't have a Bible, that's all right. We'll have it on the screen here behind me. If you'd like to get one, we'd love to put one in your hands for free back at the Welcome Center. But in Romans chapter 7, what you see is the Apostle Paul is a man who wrote the majority of the New Testament. He planted uh, uh, tons of churches uh, right after Jesus, uh, commissioned the disciples to go uh, launch churches. And he himself begins to talk about the wrestle that I hear so many people in my life and the lives of those around me who wrestle with addiction, this, this cry of the heart uh, that, that they share is really echoes of what Paul shares in Romans chapter 7. So I want you to see this morning that you're not alone. Romans chapter 7 verse 21 says this, although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. Paul says, I want to do good. I want to treat my family right. I want to do what I ought to be doing. But every time I think about doing what's good, there's just this thought that comes up in my head to do what I shouldn't do. And if you're honest with us this morning, you can relate to what Paul is saying. Right? Maybe it's not an addiction for you, but, but you know that pull. It's that undercurrent of sin that says, man, I want to treat somebody well, but man, it'd feel good to fly off the handle on them right now. Right? I, I want to do this, but instead there's this pull inside of me. And what Paul is saying here is that is sin and it's pulling us in against what I want. And you hear this in the cry of those wrestling with addiction. Matt, I don't want to do it. I, don't, I know what it does to my family. I, I hate that I lie, cheat, and steal to get it, but it just seems like I can't over come it just overpowers me many can relate to that emotion well paul is saying i'm with you i feel that you're not on an island with that wrestle that is common to all human experience because we're broken because of sin what that brokenness so often leads to in our life is actually what paul says here in the next verse in 20 verse 24 He says, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from the body that is subject to death? You see this almost self-loathing in Paul because he hates so much the things that he's doing. What it it hurts him, how it hurts others, how it offends God. It bothers him and he begins to almost, it almost looks like he's just looking down on himself. Which, if you've ever wrestled with a habitual sin of any kind, you know that emotion, you know that feeling. I swore I'd never do it again, and, and, and here I am. I swore to them, and I promised to them that I'd be different, and I, I want to be different, but I get it. I just feel awful. I've never had a conversation with somebody who came off a bender or something like that who just said, man, I feel great, better than ever, love my life, right? 
They don't. They feel shame. They feel terrible, which is what Paul is saying here. And he says something. It's, there's a lot he's saying theologically here, but it's really important that you catch this. This is from this body that is subject to death. What Paul is talking about is that we are all born with a sin nature. We're all attracted to something that is going to hurt us. And it might be substance abuse for some. It might be something else for somebody else. But it is literally on a, a straight path for destruction. We don't have the power to stop it. And he says, who's going to rescue me from this pull? I need help. Well, the good news for us this morning is he's going to lay out three, uh, well, a bunch of things, but three things that I want to draw your attention to this morning. If, if this is something you struggle with or you have, want to have a conversation with somebody who is struggling, here's uh, what the Word of God would say. You are not as trapped as you feel. One of the huge things about addictions is, is there's, there's two phases. One, there's the denial phase. It's just a couple drinks after work. It's just this product. I won't name products. It's just this product. It's not a big deal. It's whatever. I've got it under control. I could stop anytime I want it. There's the denial phase if it's not a big deal. But then there's this kind of gap where all of a sudden you realize you can't control it. You can't stop it. It has consumed you way beyond what you thought, and you want to stop, but now you realize it's sunk its claws so deep into you, and that feeling can cause you to feel trapped because it just keeps coming like waves. And what Paul is saying in this letter is, listen, you are not as trapped as the addiction or that sin would make you feel because of what he says here in verse 25. He says, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. He says, I feel this pull, I feel the destruction, but thanks be to God that he was strong enough to intervene on my behalf, that he was the one who stepped in and delivered me from what I was unable to deliver myself from. And maybe you're here this morning, and, and this is something you wrestle with in your life, and you say, you know what, I've tried this church thing before, Matt, like, I did it, I'm here, right? But you know what happened was, um, I came in, and I committed, I was going to be different, and I still struggled. And so when I walk in here on a Sunday morning, not only do I feel bad about what I did, I feel extra guilty because now it feels like um, I offended God even more and it feels like everybody knows when I walk in the door. There are many conversations like this. Here's what Paul would say to you next. Next verse, Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He says there is no condemnation if you... Uh, have surrendered your sin and you have put your life in, in, in your hands in, in the hand, excuse me, your life in the hands of Christ uh, to be your forgiver and leader. He says, there is no condemnation for you. And you say, what does condemnation mean? Let me explain it for you. Condemnation is this. It is a sentence to punishment, to pass judgment or to be pronounced guilty. It's the feeling, and maybe you can't relate to this, but it's the feeling when you were at work and you messed something up, you broke something or you did something wrong, but you didn't really want to fess up about it. And so you just kind of like, walked around the whole day hoping we'd notice that you, you were the one that broke the printer, all right, or whatever it was, and finally somebody comes up to you, and you're like, this is the point where they are calling me out, and they're like, how's your week going? And you're like, oh, okay, it wasn't that, right? That is condemnation. It is this feeling of walking around feeling guilty all the time for what you've done, and this is something that is true not just for those who struggle with substance abuse, but for anybody who walks in life, because we like to punish ourselves when we do wrong. And I know that sounds crazy, but we feel bad about it. We want to do something with that shame. So uh, we begin to punish ourselves to try to make up for it. And, and what happens is you're putting judgment on your head, and then you think God is putting judgment on your head, and he's not. 
Why? Because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because he took the penalty that you deserved. He took your guilt. He took your sentence. He took your punishment. He took your judgment. He put it on him so it wouldn't have to be put on you anymore. One of the things that condemnation so often does is it tries to turn events into identities. It may have been something you've done. It might have even have been something you did repeatedly. It might even be something you continue to do repeatedly, but listen, it is not who you are. It is not the definition of who you are. You, whether you are currently following Jesus or not, or a child of God, you've been created in his image. Now what you may have done is begin to look for hope and rescue in places that God said it was never going to deliver. But it does not change the fact that you are a child of God, so you're not an addict. You're not a drunk. You are a child of God who needs to come home to the Father. Because here's the second thing I want you to get this morning. You are not defined by your darkest moment, but by Jesus' darkest moment. You are not defined by the things you hate, the things you regret, the things you have remorse over, the things you won't talk about. They do not define you anymore because Jesus took upon your darkness upon himself so you wouldn't have to anymore. He became your sin, your shame, your guilt so you could be Free. Listen to how Paul says this in verse 2. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Let me unpack that. He says, because of what Jesus did at the cross and going to pay for that, he defeated the law of sin that was pulling you in. He broke it. He broke the curse so that you could be free from sin and death. For what the law or Uh, behavior change was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh. Let me unpack for you what that means. He says, because you lacked the willpower to fix yourself, because you can't white knuckle out sin, Jesus came in the form of human, took on your sin, took on your shame, took on your addiction, and he went to the cross and paid for that, and then he put, to, he put sin in condemnation. He judged sin so that we wouldn't be judged. He judged sin so that you could be free because of what he has done for Maybe you say, okay, I believe all that, I'm in, I want to follow Jesus, I want to be free, I want to be free of condemnation, but, and I have, but, but how come I still, I still feel bad when I mess up? It would be a gift of God, because when we come to him, he gives us a new heart with new desires, and when our actions go awry, when we begin to chase down things that will hurt us, God lovingly pokes us and prods us to stop us and bring us back, which would be conviction. I want you to see the difference of these two here. Condemnation is fueled by guilt and leads to shame. Condemnation says, God must be so mad at me. Everybody's going to be so disappointed in me if they found out. What are they going to think of me? They must think I'm a loser. They must think I'm an idiot. It just leads you to behavior that is hurtful. Conviction says, I've been so deeply loved by God. He sent Jesus to sacrifice on my behalf. I love the people in my life, and I know they love me, which means I need to come back and repent and change. Why? Because I love them, not because they hate me, because I love them and I know God loves me. Do you see the difference here? One will set you free. One will enslave you in a cycle. One will offer you the life you're really chasing. And he talks about this desire change that is so important in our process of healing. It's this in verse 5. 
To those who live according to the flesh have their mind set on what the flesh desires, but those who live according with the Spirit have their mind set on what the Spirit desires. He says not only does he uh, break sin, not only does he give you a, a new life, he also gives you new desires. You don't have to desire and chase the things you used to chase anymore, right? I've used this illustration before, but every Sunday uh, that I come in, there's a box of Tim Hortons sitting on uh, my table back there. And here's the deal about Tim Hortons. I love sprinkled donuts. I just do. I love them, all right? Judge me. That's fine. I'm okay with it. If I come in and I haven't had a good breakfast and I'm sitting at my table preparing and praying, I'm just staring at that box of donuts. Do you know how tempting those donuts are to me? Super tempting. And I try not to eat them because I try to eat healthy. But man, if I'm empty, I want to eat them. But if I've come in here and, and I ate a good breakfast and I'm full physically when I sit in front of those donuts, I'm, I don't desire them anymore because I'm full of something else. What Paul is saying here is that if we could get our minds off of the thing, I can't do this, I can't do this, I can't do this, and we begin to say, I have this in my relationship with Jesus. I get to do this now. I have this love with God. I don't even desire the sin anymore. It has completely changed what I look for and long for in life made only possible by the Spirit being inside of us. Maybe you hear all this and you're still not convinced. You say, you know what, Matt? You just don't know what's in my past. You just don't know how broken I really am. Listen to what Paul would say in verse 11. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. Paul says this, don't you think that if the same spirit who brought Jesus out of the grave, defeated sin and death for all of humanity, was put inside of you, which is what happens when you give your life to Christ, that he can defeat what's broken? That, that he can defeat your sin? Like, he defeated it for all of humanity. I'm pretty sure he can defeat it for you and I, which brings us to our third point this morning. Your addiction, your sin, whatever word you want to put in there, is not stronger than Jesus. Uh, you can say this in your head, say it out loud, I don't care. The alcohol pull is not stronger than Jesus. The pull of heroin is not stronger than Jesus. The, the pull of sex outside of God's design is not stronger than Jesus. There is nothing that is stronger than his love for you and his ability to overcome it in your life. For all of us here this morning, I hope you know that you are not trapped. You can find freedom in Jesus because he has already overcome and already paid for Maybe you hear all this and you go, yeah, but you're a pastor, so what do you know? You don't know what the pull is. You don't know what the struggle is, and I hear that. I want you to take a minute. I want you to listen to a man who has walked this road and has found incredible hope in Jesus. I was born in Philadelphia to loving parents. My dad, around, around the age of five, decided to to move out up into the country, so he bought a small 80-acre farm outside of Springville. And the following year, my parents uh, sent my brother and I back down to Philadelphia to stay with friends. Somehow I was selected to share a bedroom with the older teenage boy. And it was during that period of time that I was sexually abused. And when I returned home after that week, uh, I was really confused, angry, there was shame, guilt. I had no idea how to share what had taken place, but the anger um, 
just continued to really grow inside of me. I was angry at my parents because, you know, they were supposed to watch over me and protect me. I became a very difficult child who was hard to control. My parents drank, so I, I figured at a very young age I could sneak uh, liquor and beer from, from my parents without them even knowing it. And I started smoking pot around 11. And uh, I realized that by doing that, I could stay numb. But my life really became about living lies. My drug use continued, and I decided to join the Air Force. Uh, I, I joined just to escape my life and how it was. And before I went overseas, I took a 30-day leave of absence. And it was during this period of time in my life that I was introduced to the needle and crystal meth. Probably that decision there was one that really sent my life into spirals. And I traveled throughout Europe. Uh, I was still using, but everything was in control at this point in my life. I met my first wife, Lori. I fell in love with her and we got married. Uh, she knew I was using and it didn't take long before she started using. My tour was up, I was honorably discharged. She still had a year and a half left, had orders for Mountain Home, Idaho, where I contacted someone in Idaho to see if there was speed there. And I was told no, and I made the choice of, I was gonna walk away from my marriage for a bag of speed and a needle. And it didn't take long before I became very ill. I was suffering from hepatitis. And the doctor told me that if I didn't give up my lifestyle, um, I wouldn't be around long. So I had to give up the alcohol and the drugs, the hard drugs. I continued to smoke pot, went back to work, and uh, I maintained that way for probably a good year or so. And then I got slowly back into drinking and the harder drugs. I always uh, figured that my life would end due to accidental suicide, I would call it. Um, drinking, I would leave the bar and I couldn't even hardly walk. And I would drive well over 100 miles an hour and figured if I lost control, my life would be over. My personal life was totally a train wreck. My niece hooked me up on a blind date and I was with Laura, my wife now. We hit it off and uh, we got married. She had two wonderful boys. Uh, things were going good as far as, you know, the outward appearance, but inside, uh, you know, dealing with kids, uh, a home, a house, responsibility. Uh, I started using more and more. You know, I was dealing to keep supply my own habit, and uh, she was getting more and more uh, concerned. Uh, one night, you know, we got into one argument, and uh, as far as my rage and my anger, it was kind of like a volcano that erupted. Uh, once it started spewing, I couldn't stop, I couldn't control it. And I began to smash things in our home. I don't know how long it lasted, it lasted quite a while. And we both left and I came home and I, for the first time I, I saw the fallout. And I think for the first time in my life, I realized that I didn't like the monster that I had become. And 
at that point, I just said, I'd be better off if, everybody would be better off if I was not in this world. And I remember going to upstairs to our bedroom and taking the pistol and sitting there on the floor. I decided I was going to end my life. And I couldn't do it. And I thought, what a failure I am. Later on that evening, I made some phone calls. And the next day, I was on my way to Bethany, a rehabilitation center for drugs and alcohol. And you know, it was wanting so bad to change, but not knowing if it was even possible. And during that time frame, uh, my wife, Laura, we had been talking to Pastor Jay Molino from Bridgewater. She surrendered her life to the Lord, and she informed me that maybe I should talk to Jay. And Jay came down to see me. I was surprised because, you know, he didn't even know me. I'm sure he knew my story, and I was thinking, why would someone want to come and talk to, especially a pastor, come and talk to someone like me? But he did, and he led me to the Lord. And I wasn't sure, not, not surrendering and not, not admitting that I was a sinner and that I needed help. I knew that. What I struggled with was just turning my life over to the Lord, you know, the surrender. And he shared the verse in Revelations about, here I stand knocking at your door. If anyone opens the door, I'll come in and eat with him. And I was hesitant to just throw the door open. And Jay said, if you only open it just a little bit, that's all you need. And I was okay with that. Just open it a little bit because I was so unsure. And so when I left the rehab, I came to Bridgewater because I felt I owed Jay that much. And uh, when I walked through the door, him and his wife stood there. He just, uh, he just grabbed a hold of me and gave me a bear hug. I think my feet came up off the floor. And as I w walked in, the warm, a friendly greeting from the people of the church just blew me away. Never expected that. But I still had a lot of struggles in my life. I still struggled with anger, still struggled with dealing with my feelings, and I just figured that's the way it's always going to be. I'm never going to get rid of my anger. And uh, over time, you know, going through Celebrate Recovery. Celebrate Recovery actually put me on the road to of healing. Scripture says that if I'm not willing to forgive, God won't forgive me. The unforgiveness, the bitterness and the anger inside of me was really destroying everything around me. And I'll be honest, I didn't want to forgive. I had no desire to forgive the man who abused me. But as I spent time in recovery, I began to realize that I was no better off than the people that abused me. I was no different. People that I had hurt, I didn't care how bad I, badly I hurt them, how it was going to impact them, how it may have altered their lives. I didn't care. Christ took everything all my sin, I took it to the cross. He showered me with his grace, his love, and his mercy. 
And for me to be like him, I had to do the same. And I truly did forgive the man who abused me. And it was like a ton of, of weight lifted off my shoulders. As I began to um, do these things, healing started to, to happen more and more. Anger started to dissolve more and more. I no longer want to be in control. I still find myself trying to take control at times. And I can say now that I'm more committed, more in love with my wife now than the day we got married. Been some struggles, but stayed committed in our in our love and our relationship with the Lord. And uh, finally put all my past behind me to deal with my past, to accept my past. And now I'm looking forward to uh, what God has in store for me now. Amen. One of the powerful pieces of his story, I think, is how it relates to what we talked about last week. If you missed it, as we talked about anger and, and unforgiveness, it, it really was what led to the fortresses in his life where the enemy began to attack him. And as God began to walk that back and he began to find healing, there was incredible freedom that was brought. And I hope you hear out of his story this morning um, that no matter where you are, no matter where you've gone, no matter where you've run to, Jesus didn't come to condemn you. He came to save you. He came to rescue you, and there's hope for all of us here this morning. If you're here this morning and you struggle or you know somebody that struggles and you want to get them connected, um, there's a couple places and a couple things that we'd encourage you to do. One, uh, get connected to a small group. Uh, there is uh, such power in other people walking alongside of you. Um, we have one specifically here. Uh, as he mentioned it there, uh, Terry runs the one in uh, Montrose, and he actually said, hey, can you, can you let people know that this isn't like yesterday for me, that he's been sober for 31 years, um, that God's been doing incredible things. He's been, uh, been able to lead countless people through their own struggles, uh, just an incredible ministry from him. But uh, uh, Joe, if you want to lift your hand in the back, Joe runs our Celebrate Recovery here in Halstead. Uh, it's a small group setting, uh, safe environment for anybody with hurts, habits, and hangups who's looking for uh, some help in the process. Um, if you personally want to, want to talk to a pastor, myself or David, um, and you don't get to catch us this morning, grab that card in front of you, uh, the communication card. Just put your name and number, and I have questions, uh, and we'll, we'll get in touch with you uh, there. If you are not involved in AA meeting, I'd highly encourage that as well. Um, and perhaps you're here, and you have somebody in your life, and you want to figure out how to better equip them, have better conversations. Um, we have a website up for any of the weeks of this series, actually, called uh, bridgewater.church slash asking, and there's resources on there for each of the topics uh, that we've covered. To us as a church, I would say this. There, there was a biomedical team out at Google who's been working very hard uh, to try to help figure out how to help uh, curb or even solve the substance abuse problem that we have. And he was talking to a group of pastors, and he said, it pains me to stay, say this. I hate saying it because I'm an atheist, and I don't believe in your God, but I'm also a scientist, and data is data, and I can't lie about the data he said this, I can write prescriptions for my clients, but I cannot provide what the church can provide, which is connection, community, and belonging. And he went on to basically say, oh, we can do our part on the medical end, but until they, those that struggle with addiction find a place that they are belonged, loved, and cared for, we don't have a shot at this. So what he's saying is we are uniquely positioned as a church to reach Halstead, Great Bend, New Milford, and the surrounding communities to be the place where when somebody's struggling, they know they can go for help and hope. 
The challenge to all of us, those who are followers of Jesus, is that your home would be a place where your neighbors know when they're struggling, they can come. That this place would be a place that the community knows they can come for hope and help when they are hurting. Let's pray. Dearly Father, we come before you. We thank you for your goodness in our life, and we thank you for Terry and his ministry, uh, and how you have radically changed him and have used him to help so many other people, God. We thank you for his sobriety. We, we pray that you would protect him. As he went public like this, uh, the enemy would love nothing more than to discourage him or uh, tempt him. Lord, we pray that you just protect him. Lord, pray that as a church, uh, we would be aware and sensitive, as followers of you, we'd be aware and sensitive to those in our life who are in desperate need of hope. Lord, that we would love them well and be connected to them. I pray uh, for any heart in this room struggling with addiction, that shame would have no space, they would have no room, that the love of Jesus would be the loudest thing they hear in their heart this morning. We love you, Lord, and we praise you and give you today. In Jesus' name, amen.